Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. You've heard the term reverse psychology, right? Reverse psychology. If you want your kid to clean his room, you don't say, go clean your room. You say, I don't want you to clean your room. And the idea is that they then, in disobedience to you, want to go clean their room, right? That's how that works, reverse psychology. In my experience, it doesn't really work, right? See, I wish we could simply uh, tell you to do something and that you would, or not to do something, and you would just go out and do those things. I wish people were just that easy to manipulate, right? Maybe I don't wish that. See, unfortunately, we don't really work that way. I remember a pastor friend saying to me at one point, he said, you know, if you tell people to do evangelism, uh, you get up and you preach a sermon and you say, you need to go out and you need to evangelize and you need to share your faith. Guess what they won't be doing? They won't be sharing their faith. It's not like we just kind of put on this list of rules and automatically do the things. It's not like an equation. You plus this and add this and insert a little bit of this, and all of a sudden you have this perfect kind of Christian that comes out the other end. See, this morning I wonder if we have some wrong-headed notions about what mission or evangelism really is. I wonder if we have some wrong-headed notions kind of floating around inside of us that evangelism is only for extroverted people, that it's always highly confrontational, that missionaries and pastors are the only ones who are really supposed to do the work of evangelism. And that it's fundamentally scary and something to be avoided. Today, at the turn of the year, I think it might be good for us to return to this concept, though, of mission. What is it that Jesus wants us to accomplish in the world? And how does he equip us to do this particular work that he's calling us to? See, here's our big idea as we enter into the text we just read in Matthew chapter 28. Worship of a powerful and present Savior lies at the heart of true disciple-making. If you want to do disciple-making, you want to do evangelism or mission or whatever we call it, the, the starting place of it all, the heart of it all, has to be a heart of submissive worship to a resurrected Savior who's present and powerful with His people. See, I think we might have missed the boat. What we've done is we've created this sense of evangelism that's kind of a a notch on our belt, that it's really about an affirmation of my ability to be able to draw people into the faith, as it were. But what's placed in front of us here this morning is a God who is present with His people to empower them to the work that He's called them to. I want to take moments this morning as we unpack these scriptures to kind of return to this idea that Jesus has for us. See, we're going to see this in two different phases. In verses 16 and 17, that the disciples recognize Jesus' authority in worship. And so they recognize his authority and they start to respond via worship. They're bowing down to him. Verses 18 through 20, the disciples recognize Jesus' authority in discipling. So we see these two phases, right? We see the worship and discipling. We see how they come together. And so let's dive in this morning. Genesis, or Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 17. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. 
See, the disciples go to Galilee. And what's happened here in this chapter at the end of Matthew is Jesus has raised himself from the dead. He's uh, come alive again. After he was crucified uh, for the sins of his people, he's now raised again to new life, and he appears to Mary and to those who come to the graveside early on in chapter 28. And what he says to them, uh, he says that they should uh, go and tell the disciples that they should go to Galilee, where he'll meet them. And then he, uh, first he speaks through angelic presence, and then he meets Mary and her friend on the way, and he portrays this message to them. Look up at verse 7 with me. Then they go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen and from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. Now notice that it's only the 11 disciples. Judas has, has died. He's no longer with them. And so these 11 disciples are supposed to go to Galilee. And so we're saying, what in the world is up with Galilee? Why didn't Jesus go and meet them in Jerusalem? I mean, this is an 80-mile walk for them from Jerusalem to Galilee. This represents multiple days of travel for them. Why does Jesus want to meet them in Galilee? Well, if we were to kind of look through the book of Matthew this morning, we would see that Galilee is a pretty important place. It's, it's the place where uh, Joseph settled his family in Matthew chapter 2. It's where Jesus began to preach in Matthew chapter 3. It's where Matthew records that Jesus calls his first disciples in Matthew chapter 4. It's in Matthew 26, the, the place that Jesus predicted that he would meet them at after his resurrection. See, it would seem that Galilee had a lot of history with Jesus and his disciples. It's where Jesus began his ministry in Galilee, where he started things off. And now he wants to hand over his ministry to these men in Galilee, that they can kind of continue on with the work he has begun. And so what happens then in verse 17 is they go to Galilee and they begin to see him and they worship him. That's what verse 17 tells us. Now notice the mixed reactions amongst his disciples. That's what it says in verse 17. They worshipped him, but some doubted. It shows us that even these early disciples weren't perfect in their faith. It's, it's worth noting that in the Gospel of Matthew, the last time they saw Jesus was when they were running away from his presence in fear in Matthew chapter 26. See, I don't know about you, but it's a great encouragement to me that at times these disciples seem confused, even contradictory. They are a mixture of worship and doubt, of understanding and ignorance, of lavish worship and hesitance. As these disciples see Jesus raised from the dead, they still don't quite know just how to respond, what's appropriate. In fact, this word that's used here, doubt, it's the same word that's used when Peter is invited out onto the waves to follow Jesus. And he sees the wind and the waves around him, around him. And Jesus, as he falls into the water, Jesus grabs his hand and pulls him out of the water. And he says, oh, ye of little faith, why did you doubt? See, Jesus is recognizing that, well, he recognized in Peter the sense of doubt to be able to see the wind and the waves and not believe. And these disciples are experiencing something of the same thing. But we might miss, in, in the emphasis upon this doubt in verse 17, we might miss that they did worship. 
Our passage doesn't give us much explanation of what that looked like. Was it bowing down? Was it verbal affirmation? What exactly was going on? But the verb itself actually means to bow down. Now, it's used in all kinds of a host of variety of things. It's the, the wise men came and bowed down before Jesus earlier on in, in the book of Matthew, in Matthew 2. See, this is a fitting response for these disciples in this situation as they see Jesus with their eyes for the first time in the Gospel of Matthew. As they behold Him, as they see Him, they recognize He's been raised from the dead. See, it reminds us this morning that a cold response to the resurrection of Jesus isn't fitting. Let's just stop for a second and take inventory of the disciples' reaction. When the disciples see Jesus for the first time in in verse 9, they took hold of his feet and worshipped him, or the ladies did in verse 9. They travel some 80 miles to come and meet Jesus in Galilee. When they see him this time, they they bow down and worship him in verse 17. See, their responses show a willing, not just a willing response, but an eager response to Jesus. Jesus. Yes, some of it was mingled with doubt, but on the whole, these disciples were obedient and ready. They had been affected by something deeply. They were ready to move. The question is, by what? What was, what was it that had gotten hold of these disciples to such a degree that now they were transformed to this worshiping group of 11 men? Of course, it's the resurrection, isn't it? We're to back up to the earlier part of chapter 28. That's the event that we see that changes everything. It's the death of Jesus that is the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of Jesus that shows his power and his victory over death that he transfers to us, that that allows us to be forgiven of our sin, that transforms us and invites us into resurrection. See, the, the resurrection invites us to worship true comprehension of Jesus' resurrection from the dead leads to response of worship. Whatever it is that Jesus is about to call us to, we do well to note the state of his disciples' hearts. They were ready. They were equipped with belief in a resurrected God-man, Jesus. They were sure of his victory over sin and death. They were ready to go wherever, whenever, for the sake of his fame in the world. See, we recognize this morning that as Jesus is on the precipice of calling us to disciple-making ministry, he starts with worship. He starts with the moldable clay of disciples that are infatuated with him. See, mission and evangelism is rooted in worship. Mission and evangelism is rooted in in a, a heart that is desirous to see God glorified in his world. And mission and evangelism that's not rooted in this isn't sustainable. This summer, uh, my wife and I, we were, we had loaded up our kids and other kids from the church to go to a youth event at the Klimkowski's house. And we got halfway there through Tip City, the bustling streets of Tip City, Ohio. And uh, our car, like it wouldn't drive, it wouldn't go. That's as much as I can describe as the mechanic level that I'm at, right? It wouldn't go anywhere. And sure enough, I found out later on that the alternator had gone out. And so there we were with a car that wouldn't go anywhere, right? And we had this car that, uh, you know, it just wouldn't, you would try and steer the wheel, nothing would steer, no power steering, no go, no anything, right? So your alternator takes your car's mechanical energy and stores it as electrical energy. That's what I had to look up on the internet. That's what they told me, right? 
If your alternator isn't working, all of your car's activity will eventually just kind of wind down into nothing. That's what our evangelism does. If it's just evangelism for evangelism's sake, if we just say, you should share your faith, you should do this, you're just going to be like a car without an alternator. You're just going to wind down into nothing. You're going to be stuck on the side of the road in Tip City. See, mission has to have an engine to drive it. A proper view of the exalted, risen Jesus is the only appropriate thing to really drive us to share our faith with others around us. Look what Matthew wants to drive us to in the second section. He wants to drive us to a deeper reflection. Not just the the energy of worship. He wants to draw us into the work of his kingdom. Specifically, Jesus is about to get give us some marching orders to kind of guide his disciples. And now that we've established the heart's disposition of worship, we'll see the task to which that heart is sent to work on, right? So read with me in verses 18 through 20. We're so familiar with these verses, we might kind of just read over them without thinking about them. But look at what he says in verse 18. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus invites them to Galilee. They travel these 80 miles, these two days, to finally get here. And this is the message that Jesus has to speak to them. Go, make disciples of all the nations. And so Jesus starts off in verse 18, and he gives us this principle that Jesus has all authority. Now, Jesus is the recipient of all authority because of his resurrection. See, we might miss this as we read it in the New Testament. We might miss the connection it had to the Old Testament, that really Jesus is drawing from the importance of another passage in Daniel chapter 7 that is actually uh, talking about this authority and predicting this giving of authority. Daniel chapter 7, it's on the screen behind me. He says this, I saw in the night visions. This is Daniel's visions that he had of one that was like the Ancient of Days, giving authority to a son of man. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. See, the picture here is this ancient of days bestowing upon this son of man, Jesus. That's his most famous title that he uses of himself. The ancient of days, the father giving authority forever over everyone to his son. This is the fulfillment of that passage in Matthew chapter 28 when Jesus tells us that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. See, as Jesus has been raised, this authority is his. And this is what we've already seen in Philippians chapter 2. That when Jesus uh, humiliated himself, he humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross, Paul says that therefore, because of this, God has given him the name above every name. That at his name, every knee shall bow, every 
tongue confess, then we might step and say, wait a minute, Jesus wasn't authoritative, and now he is? What's happening here? How did Jesus go from like zero to 60 on the authority scale? I mean, he's, he's there. He's performing miracles, right? He's driving out demons. He's curing blind people. He's causing uh, lame people to rise up and walk. How does he not have authority before this moment? Well, surely he did. But notice that the statement here is given him. In verse 18, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, that something has changed, that now it's not just an earthly authority that he has to cast out demons, to do all of this other. He has authority in heaven and on earth. See, the picture we get is this Jesus that is fully authoritative on earth. He's doing his earthly ministry. He's aided by the presence of the Holy Spirit, but... When he gives himself as a sacrifice for sin, the Father sees fit to seat him at his right hand, to bestow him an earthly and heavenly authority for all eternity, so that now Jesus has full authority over heaven and earth and everything in between. John Calvin says it this way, he was installed in the government of heaven and earth. That at this moment, that he's declaring himself to be fully authoritative. See, right now, Jesus has, a, has been seated at God's right hand, according to Matthew 26, with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him, according to 1 Peter chapter 3. Because of this authority, notice what he goes on to command them to do in verse 19. It says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Now let's just kind of get the lay of the land of this verse. We've talked about this verse a lot, but I just want to kind of break it down. There's one commandment in this passage, and that's this. It's make disciples. Everything else is a participial phrase. Go is a participial phrase. Teach is a participial phrase. Baptize is a participial phrase. And so what we get the, the sense of is that God, Jesus, is telling us that we should be making disciples as if we had these tools in our tool belt. We are going. We are teaching. We are baptizing. Those are the tools for the mandate of making disciples that we have. So we get a sense of what Jesus is asking us to do. The central command is that we are to be disciple-making disciples. That you and I, as we are called into faith in Jesus Christ, are given this very commandment. That as Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 5, that we are ambassadors, that we are representatives of, of this other kingdom, this otherworldly kingdom. And the tools that we have in our tool belt are going, baptizing, and teaching. Let's talk about those. We go. We go. And it's not just for missionaries and people who minister to foreign cultures. All of us as Christians go. In fact, a lot of commentators look at the way this language is stated and they would say that it, the, the, the verbiage is actually more as you're going. As you're doing your regular life, you are interacting with men and women who need to hear the story of Jesus' exaltation to be fully authoritative in heaven and on earth. They need to hear this message as you are going. The truth is that everyday life presents us with many disciple-making opportunities. 
So the disciple-making task can be done in the regular rhythms of life, whether you're at work or at the supermarket, whether you're with friends or amongst perfect strangers, disciple-making can be accomplished anywhere there are people. Right? So go is not just a command for those super spiritual missionaries. Go is part of the process of our regular life of disciple-making disciples. He tells us that we should baptize. Baptism, we might consider just to be shorthand for the process of conversion, which we talked about a few weeks ago. See, what baptism is, is it's just God's means of public proclamation and alignment with God's church. A few weeks ago, we saw National Signing Day where high school football athletes will, will sign on with different programs. And what they do is they show up and there's media there and they'll put on a baseball cap and pronounce themselves as committed to these uh, universities or these programs. Well, baptism is our National Signing Day. Baptism is us aligning ourselves with this particular institution that we think that God is truly working in. The thing that truly offers salvation to God's people. I get it. Today we get really skittish about religious rituals. right? Those empty religious ceremonies that seem to have lost their meaning. Once was in a class uh, with a woman, and we were talking through uh, kind of the principles of our church and what makes our church, and, and we described our commitment to saying baptized people, uh, our members of our church, have to be baptized after they've come to faith in Jesus Christ. And she was kind of pushing against that notion with us, and she said this. She said, no, you don't understand. I had a spiritual experience that validates my faith, and I don't need any other validation of my faith outside of that spiritual experience. And I just tried to lovingly look back at her and say, That's, I'm not discounting your spiritual experience. I'm merely saying that Jesus told us that we should be baptized. That this should be a regular part of our church. That when men and women come to faith in Jesus Christ, that they should be baptized in front of the church as a public, public proclamation of their faith. See, Jesus started his ministry with public proclamation of faith. He started his ministry by baptizing. Isn't that what we saw in John chapter 2 or what we will see in John chapter 2? Where John's disciples in John chapter 3, excuse me, John's disciples come to him and they say, hey, the disciples of Jesus are baptizing more people than, than we are, than you are. And John rejoices at the idea. See, Jesus started his ministry with baptisms for a reason. Because baptism is a sign of conversion. It's a sign of public proclamation of faith. And so we go, and we baptize, and we teach. That's what he says there in verse 20. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Or simply not to make converts. Right? We, we can make converts fairly easily, right? All you've got to do is just kind of provide the right impetus. If you provide the... Uh, the right benefits, as it were. If I promised you a, uh, an iPad for becoming a member of Gospel Community Church, you might be more inclined to be baptized and become a disciple of Jesus, right? We're not doing that, just to be clear, right? Before we start any controversy. So we're not told to simply make converts. We're called to make disciples. And disciples are those who are taught 
who are instructed. See, Jesus calls us to teach other believers. And specifically, as he's speaking here, to teach what Jesus has commanded us to do. We might simply refer to this as the task of discipling. And so we we see in this passage, we see evangelism and baptism, the call to conversion, the call to faith in Jesus Christ, and we just see discipling and the call to teach. And we as Christians should be about both of those processes. We should probably see those things as as linked together. Ed Stetzer is a missiologist. That's a, a big word for a guy who studies how people come to faith in Jesus. And he gave us this continuum Um, straight out of the passage that we're in. He says that disciple-making is this overall process, and on the one end of the spectrum, we should see the process of evangelism or mission, and we should see sharing Christ to conversion. And then the other end is discipleship, the growth after conversion. We could see all of this as the same process. It's all disciple-making. And so as you come into contact with someone who's a Christian or a non-Christian, all of it is disciple-making. Disciple-making can be done inside and outside the church. One of the things I love about this diagram is that he actually like, took a screenshot of it so that it underlines conversion with the blue line that drives me crazy every time I write a document there. But he goes on to say this, and look at the words that he gives us. He says, our evangelism has to be focused on making disciples who become disciple-makers. And our discipleship has to be mission-driven, leading those discipled to share Christ." Both of these concepts can be understood in the overarching idea of disciple-making, which is what Jesus told us to do in Matthew 28, 19 and 20. But before we get all wrapped up in what needs to be done, Jesus isn't finished yet. He's given us our task. He's given us a sense of mission, what we should be about. But in the last half of verse 20, he wants to give us himself. Look what he says, Jesus will be present with them, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus draws our attention to one of the sweetest truths we can imagine. He is always present. Even to the end of the age. Christian, I want to draw your attention to something here, that there's no fine print in this text is there he doesn't say i'm with you always so long as you obey or i'm with you always so long as you do your quiet time i'm i'm with you always so long as you tithe i'm with you always so long as you stay away from saying those naughty words i'm with you always so long as you do good christian things now there's no caveat to this statement is there jesus is always present Period. See, if you are a child of God in Christ, you never lose him. In fact, he is with you right now if you're in Christ, in the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you. See, if you are in Christ, Christ is in you. Always. And if Christ, who is God's fully authoritative king, is always with you, what on earth do we have to worry about? Think about it. All authority is given to Jesus. Authority on heaven and on earth. And that Jesus is present with you right now. 
so that the task of disciple-making isn't as scary as it once was. See, true Christians are committed, or commissioned Christians, excuse me. True Christians are commissioned Christians. You know, it's an interesting thing. R.T. France is a scholar who wrote a uh, commentary on the book of Matthew. And in his section on this passage, he highlights how this passage actually reflects so many other commissioning passages that have been given throughout the Scriptures. And I want to take a moment just to briefly look over those things, because what we see is kind of this continual pattern of, of these three proclamations and these commissioning passages. First of all, there's a mission, a job to be done, a, a method, some parameters about how it's to be done, and then finally a means about what will empower it to get done that makes any sense. So there's a mission, a method, and a means. And I'm going to invite you to look with me at Joshua chapter 1. The passage will be on the screen behind me. Joshua chapter 1, God is inviting Joshua to take over for Moses's place, right? And he's saying, hey, you're going to lead my people into the promised land. And he says in verse 5, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from your... Uh, from from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Do you see the similarities between what we saw in Matthew 28 and what we see in Joshua chapter 1? See, there's a mission. Arise, go over the Jordan in verse 2. There's a method in verse 7. Only be strong and very courageous, remembering the law in verse 8. There's a promise of God's presence, a means. Verse 5, just as I was with you, so or just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Right? So God is speaking to Joshua in the exact same way that he speaks to us in Matthew 28. We see the same thing in Judges chapter 6. You remember the story of, of Gideon? <clears throat> Gideon is there threshing wheat in obscurity. He's trying to hide himself so that he can hide from the Midianites who are trying to steal and take from him. Verse 12, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Man, he's a real Debbie Downer, isn't he? Gideon here. Verse 14, And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. 
And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. What's the commission? What's the job? What's the mission that he's to accomplish? Go in this might and save Israel from the hand of Midian. What, how is this job to be accomplished? What's the method that he's going to use? Go in this might of yours and you shall strike the Midianites as one man in verse 16. And what is the means? How does he promise his presence? He says in verse 12, the Lord is with you. He concludes in verse 16, I will be with you and shall strike the Midianites. You see, again, there's this commissioning of Gideon that reflects and reminds us of, of what's happening in Matthew 28. And this is to say nothing of the commissionings of Isaiah and Jeremiah and all of these people in the Old Testament. See, what God is doing is he's commissioning us Christians those who have faith in Jesus' resurrection, to go out, to carry on his work, and to do his bidding. See, Jesus calls us to his work in the world. Have you grappled with that? You're not just some random citizen of the United States. You're not just an employee of the the work that you do. You're not just the the sum total of your family relations. What you are is a commissioned disciple of the Lord God of the universe. See, our passage in Matthew 28 fits all of these commissioning passages we've just looked at. It comes with a mission. Go, make disciples. It comes with a method, baptizing them and teaching them. And it comes with the means, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. See, Christian, this fully authoritative Christ is fully present with us. So why not go? Maybe you're like me this morning. And if it were just the idea of doing the things that you know you should do, it would be simple enough. But for whatever reason, we are constantly hitting our heads on this issue of motivation, constantly not really being the witness that we should be. This morning I was reflecting on my own patterns in mission. And I've realized that, I'll be honest, part of this message is a reflection of my own life, is a reflection on my own life. See, I've been content to have opinions about politics and sports, inflation, you name it. I have opinions about various things here and there, and I remain silent about the thing that's most important. I interact with unbelieving people and my tendency is to just be a pleasant person to talk to and not be willing to go that extra distance to try and push the issue of the conversation about Jesus that they need to have. I've been content to remain prayerless for those men and women that I know that don't place their faith in Christ. In short, I've lost my connection to God's work in the world as he's inviting men and women to place their faith in Jesus. See, the truth is, all Christians are disciple-makers. Notice there's no exception clause stated here. There's no things that says, you know, go and make disciples if you're an extrovert. Go and, and make disciples if you're gifted in the area of evangelism. Go and make disciples if you're comfortable and happy in your home life. 
See, the command is here for all of us. And it's a command from a fully authoritative, glorified king. And if we believe that Jesus is resurrected, and if we also believe that that message of resurrection is good for others too, we have every cause in the world to go out and share. So now is the time for disciple-making, isn't it? Is there an era that we can think of that it was more important for us to be about the cause of disciple-making than now? It's time for us to kind of stop licking our wounds, isn't it? To recognize the needs of the moment, to say the needs of the moment is not better government or whatever else. The need of the moment right now is the lordship of Jesus in the hearts and minds of his people. I wonder if you're with me this morning, if you might commit ourselves, if we might commit ourselves to something very simple in 2022. See, here's my thought. What if we as a church committed ourselves to praying every week for three unbelieving friends? What if we did that? Would you commit with me to identifying three unbelieving people in your life and praying for them just once a week? And hear what I just said. Three unbelieving people that you're in regular contact with. Like, don't pray for Joe Biden or whatever else. Just strike that from the record that I named somebody, in, right? But to pray once a week, 52 prayers in 2022 for unbelieving people that you come in contact with. We've defined mission here at Gospel Community as living intentionally where we are with our friends and neighbors and relatives with an infectious love for Jesus. And maybe this might be the first step toward that intentional living and expressive evangelism that God's calling us to. We should. We should pray for Joe Biden. We should pray for Donald Trump. We should pray for any unbeliever Specifically, we want to pray for those that we come in contact with. We want to see God's kingdom work done in our midst. And we want to identify as those witnesses that God has called us to be as he called us to Christ. And before you get nervous about this, before you kind of start to shake, because that's my response, I get that feeling in the pit of my stomach. Remember, the fully authoritative Christ is powerful and present. He's powerful to save even the most hardened sinner. And he's present with you in his power. Isn't that the good news? I want to pray this morning to this very end that God would make us a people about his mission. And that 2022 would be a, a year marked by this engagement. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for the privilege of being your disciples. Lord, we recognize that we ourselves were so far off from you, from your purpose and your design, that we had rebelled against your plan for the world. We had rebelled against your laws. We had rebelled against you personally. But now, by the death of your own son, you have stricken our sin from your record. You have brought us into the light of your goodness and grace. 
So Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, I pray that you would make us worshipers so that we might be witnesses. I pray that we would resonate so deeply with how the gospel has spoken to us of Jesus' love and care for us and forgiveness that we might desire to see other men and women brought into the fold as well. That we might desire to see other men and women place their faith in you and come to be forgiven of their sins. Lord, be powerful to save and present in your power. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.